John's gospel is, is simple enough to be adequately understood by a child, by someone who's young, even, say, young in the faith, or not even yet in the faith. While simultaneously, John's gospel is profound. Profound enough to enrich and edify the maturest Christian believer, the sharpest Christian theologian, this gospel can exhaust. So as we, as we come and study this gospel, that's good news for us. doesn't matter where we're at, we come to a gospel that is something for every single one of us. Now at this very heart, John's gospel presents to us Jesus. Jesus and all his cosmic and eternal significance. And the question we're going to keep on asking ourselves as we study the gospel is, who is this Jesus? John wants us to believe him, to put our faith and trust in him, and as a result, to have life in him. In fact, the, the, the prologue, the, the epilogue of John's gospel states in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, that this gospel was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life. So that's the big purpose of this gospel. Now I know many of you are familiar with it, but let me, let me just try and help all of us get into sync with this gospel, calibrate our minds to this gospel. Because John's gospel is unique among the four gospels. It's unique in its content. It's the most theological of the gospels. John Calvin said if the, the, the first three gospels show us Christ's body, then the fourth gospel shows us Christ's soul. That is, this gospel gives us a, a knowledge of Christ in his inner being. John's gospel, unlike the, the synoptic gospels, has no parables. Very few miracles, seven. And the miracles he writes about, that the signs, most of them aren't in the other gospels, whether it's turning water into wine or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So this gospel gives us a, a unique vantage into Christ. John's gospel is filled with long discourses, conversations of Jesus with certain individuals, whether it's Nicodemus in chapter 3 or the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4 or with his disciples or even with his father in the upper room discourse, in the high priestly prayer. We get to know what Jesus prayed. We get insight into what Jesus thought and felt. If you were to structure John's gospel, just so you've kind of got an idea of where we're going, it opens with a prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It closes with a prologue, end of chapter 20, and the whole of chapter 21. And then the middle section can be divided up into two, two sections. Chapters 1 through 12 is, is a narrative that's punctuated by the signs that Jesus performs. So some people call it the book of signs. These miracles that are signs that point us to Jesus and explain to us who he is. And then you've got chapters 13 through 20, and that's really taken up with the final week of Jesus' life. And it hones right in 
to his death, which John says is, and Jesus says is his glory. So that section is called the Book of Glory. So, so, so that's something of the structure. I should just state regarding who the author is, it's John. John, the beloved disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved. We take that to mean John the Apostle. John the brother of James, John the son of Zebedee, John the fisherman from Galilee, John who was nicknamed along with his brother as the sons of thunder. John who in this gospel we will find reclining on Jesus' chest. John who will run to the empty tomb and he will just see empty and believe. John who at the foot of the cross Jesus will say, Woman, to his mum, this is your son. And he will entrust his mum to John, Mary, to John's safekeeping. So we've got a bit of the structure. We know something of the purpose. We know something of the author. Well, as we turn now to his prologue, It's helpful to know that this prologue sets the whole gospel up. You know what a prologue is? It's a bit like a foyer. Foyer? Entrance hall. Lobby. Right? You know you walk into some buildings and you're in the lobby and sometimes in some buildings you can get a, a vision or a glimpse into what the whole building is like. Well, that's what John's Gospel's prologue, John's prologue does for us. It gives us a vantage point of the entire Gospel. All of the architecture to John's Gospel is here in verses 1 through 18. You see, here John introduces us to the basic plotline of this gospel. It's all, it's all about Jesus, the Word who reveals God, who has come so that we might come into relationship with God, be children of God. John's lobby helps us see the main themes. Light, life, darkness. John's prologue is it's a lobby that we could linger in for a, a, a long time. But we're not going to do that. Because in many ways, when you're in an on- entrance hall in a lobby, in a foyer, it's really just to whet your appetite. It's really to get you moving forward. So we'll look at John's prologue this morning and this evening, and then we'll move on in the weeks to come into John's gospel. Now just before we dive into the prologue, it's worth pointing out that we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then verse 14 this morning. And you'll see there that Jesus is called in verse 1 and verse 14, the Word. It's only used in the prologue. It's a title that perhaps we're not as familiar with as the many other titles we know Jesus has. Jesus is the Word. 
many of the, the scholars and the commentators, they want to debate why Jesus, uh, John employs this term here for Jesus. Is it because it, the Greek word, the word is logos, and in, 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 in Greek philosophy in the first century, at the heart of Greek philosophy was this principle, the logos. Or is it because John's original readers, many of them perhaps Jews, would know that God created, God acted in the Old Testament through the word of the Lord. I'm going with that, the Latin interpretation, I, I, I'm with it because, let's just think about it at this more basic level, right? What do our words do? They communicate. If you want to know who I am, you learn who I am through my words. If you want to know what I'm thinking, you learn what I'm thinking through my words. If you want to know who God is, he reveals himself to us through the word. In fact, look at the capstone of the prologue, verse 18, if you've got a Bible. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is the Word, has made him known. This title, the Word, is used to say that Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. You may have heard the name Bertrand Russell, lifelong atheist. Perhaps legend, but the story is told. He was once asked the question, if you were to discover at the, at the last God was true, what, what excuse would he give to God on the day of judgment for not believing? And Bertrand Russell's response was, not enough evidence. Like, why hasn't God made himself known? Maybe, you, maybe you've asked that very question. Why doesn't God make it so clear? Is coming to, to know who God is, is a, is a cosmic game of hide and seek? The faulty thinking with Bertrand Russell is the Bible says God has made himself known. In general revelation, in special revelation, the written word and in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we, we come to this prologue, let, let, let's, let's see how God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And we're gonna, we'll get three headings just to help us as we work our way through verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. The Word and God, 1. The Word of creation, heading 2. The Word made flesh, heading 3. So let's look in at verses 1 and 2. The Word and God. And John begins his gospel by saying this. If you're going to understand Jesus, who he is, we need to go back to the dawn of time. We need to go back to the mists of eternity. Because in the beginning was the Word. First thing John wants us to understand about Jesus is his pre-existence. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. And of course John's beginning has got echoes deliberately of of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What John is saying here is, before God created the heavens and the earth, before time came into existence, and and our minds can't even go there because we're bound by time and space, before that, the Word was. 
Jesus was there. There was never a time when the word was not. And Jesus says, says to us, and maybe you've wondered to yourself, what was Jesus doing before the creation of the earth? Well, well he says in John 17, verse 5, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before anything was in existence, Jesus was there with the Father. He was, we'll see later on in John's Gospel, John 8, before Abraham was, I am. So if you're going to have a right understanding of who this Jesus is, you need to understand this. He is eternal. He is without beginning. He was there in the beginning. Next statement John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The preposition with is the idea that he was towards God. So people paraphrase it and say, Jesus was face to face with the Father. Jesus was dwelling in perfect harmony and unhindered fellowship with the Father. Now, now this, is, this is where we get the seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity, and this is where the mind begins to boggle and baffle. Here we read about the one who is eternal, and we read about him who is with the Father. So we read about two persons. Now, you may ask the question, why does John want us to know that the Word was with the Father? Well, it's a little glimpse into what is to come. You see, what Jesus came into this world to do was to bring you and I into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was to bring you and I into the life of the Trinity. Before creation, the Word was there. He was with the Father. The Father was glorifying the Word. The Word was glorifying the Father. We know from later on the Spirit was there doing the same. In fact, out of the abundance of their love for each other, out of the abundance of their love and life, they chose to make creation. With the purpose that people whom he created could come into relationship and share in fellowship and communion with the Godhead. Some of the things that, that John says are just so staggering, but Jesus will pray in the, in the high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the earth. Now, now, that's just mind-boggling, but let me, see, let, me, let me put it like this. Sometimes when people think about becoming a Christian and, and what it, the Christian life's all about, we never get beyond the seeing that becoming a Christian is to, to share in union and communion with God, try in God. And, 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 and when you understand what God was doing before creation, it, it, just absolutely enjoying one another, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead, you, 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 you perhaps never get to the, the point you're thinking where you realize that is the most amazing thing, that, that to be absolutely enamored with 
each other in love, in life, in perfection, in purity. There is nothing better. You've had that experience, I'm sure of it. I heard Sinclair Ferguson use this illustration. You're with a friend, right? A friend you really like, a friend you love. And, you, and you're just talking. And, and when you're with someone who you know and you love and you feel safe with, it's so easy just to get enamored in conversation and it just goes on and on for hours. You laugh, you, you share your mutual interests, you delight in each other, you encourage each other. And then one of you realize, look at the time, where's the time gone? Yeah, it's like when you're with your, your, your friend, you, you lose track of time, you're just so enamored with each other. Well, that's just a tiny, tiny little glimpse into what eternity with us in fellowship with God is. We'll never be conscious of time because we'll be so enamored by God. Delighting in Him. In His presence, there's the fullness of joy. In His right hand, we quoted this last week, there are pleasures from evermore. We'll be so taken up with Him. John starts here, the word was, was in the beginning, the word was with God, and then he says the next statement, the high climactic statement of verse 1, and the word was God. Baffling, mind-boggling, because John is a monotheist. There is only one God. And yet he said in the previous statement, right, there's the Word and he's with the Father. He's going to speak with the Holy Spirit later in his gospel. And so, 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 so what he's given us here is the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And in many ways, there's, there's no illustration that can communicate this well. There is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They're distinct persons, but they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. John wants us to know about the word who reveals God. He is God. All that is true of God is true of Jesus. Now, you may have Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and one of the places they'll take you to try and disprove to you the date of Christ is they'll come here and Try, try and do some Greek mental gymnastics with you. But listen, this passage screams out from beginning to end. Uh, this book does. Jesus is God. Now, so what? Okay? What's, what's, what, 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 how should we respond to this? Listen, this is why John is telling us this. The foundation upon which the gospel rests is who God is. For you and I to be saved, we need God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For, for you and I to know salvation, it is to come into fellowship and union and communion with God. And here John wants us to know that this gospel rests on who God is. It rests on Jesus, who is the Word, who was in the beginning, who was with the Father, who is God. Then John goes on in verse 2 and he says... 
literally the same thing. He, he takes two points that he said in verse 1 and he puts it in one short sentence. He was in the beginning with God. But just notice this. He says, he. Heads up. This one is the word who became man. This is a little nod to the incarnation. He's preparing us. So our first point is the word and God. Let's now look at the word and creation, verses 3 through 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The next thing John wants us to know regarding Jesus is that he is the creator. The agent by which creation was made. Now, again, John's a, a Jew. He, he's, a, he, he's somebody who, who was reared in the Old Testament. And the prerogative of God is creation. So John, by saying here all things were made through Jesus, the all made, things were made through him, is telling us again that, Je- that Jesus is God. John wants us to see what is true of Jesus. It is a consistent testimony of the New Testament that Jesus is the agent by which all things were made. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Such an elevated Christology, the word is the agent of creation. And again, you've got to ask the question, so what? Why is that significant? He's our creator. We're his creation. That means we're not our own. We belong to him. We're accountable to him. He's the one who made us. He's the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb. He fashioned us. He's the one who, who, who gave us the gifts that we've got. He's the one who made us in his image. He endowed us with dignity and worth. He's the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. That's who this Jesus is. And, 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 and in John's language here, it's so evocative, right, of course, of Genesis chapter 1. If Jesus is a creator, that is, if Jesus made the first creation, he is well qualified for the new creation. The agent by whom all things can be made new. Through him we can receive new life, we can be born again. So, 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 so John here labors the point, the word and creation. And, and, and notice he doesn't say Jesus creates. He actually goes on and says Jesus sustains. In him, verse 4, was life. Jesus is the source of life. The embodiment of life. Life is actually one of John's favorite words. Use it again and again. Now, John always uses words and they sometimes have a double meaning. This isn't just life in the sense of physical life, but it's also Jesus is the source of life. Eternal life. 
you think of all the verses in this, this book that reference life. John 3.16, God so loved the world. He was his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting eternal life. He came so that we would know life and life in its abundance. He's the way, the truth and the life. John's making here the point, see, Jesus, you need to know who this Jesus is. This Jesus is, he's the one who gives life. Our physical life and he can give us new life. True life. Life with him. Not only that, he is the life that was the light of men. John loves these images. He's got life and death will be big themes, this couplet. Then there's going to be light and darkness. Jesus is the fountain of life. He's a fountain of light. He brings life. He bears light. The next verse says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's this amazing. John will say in his gospel, we'll quote in the gospel of Jesus where he says, I am the light of the world. When you think of light, what do you think of? Well, it's the antithesis of darkness. What does light do? Light illuminates. Jesus comes to reveal the Father. He comes to expose the darkness as well. That is, Jesus, as our creator, comes and the light of the world, he ends up showing us who we are because he exposes us to our sinfulness. But he gives light so that he he actually gives knowledge and understanding. He enables us to know the way of salvation. The way of salvation is in him. And we need to know that Jesus is the light who overcomes the darkness. So, so again, so what? We live in a world that right now we feel it's darkness. We live in a world that's full of death. Jesus is the life. And the light who bring, whose light overcomes the darkness and who brings life to those who are dying in their sins. And now we need to be fast and just wrap this up with the last point. The word made flesh. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace. This is truly staggering and stunning. The one who is eternal, the one who is pre-existent, the one who was with the Father, the one who is God, was made flesh. See that word there? It's quite a crude word to use. He didn't say he was made human. He didn't say he was took a body. He said he was made flesh. Speaks of the weakness and the frailty of human nature. Jesus, the eternal word, Jesus, who was with the Father, who was sharing in glory, then hold on to it, but willingly and gladly came and took upon flesh. Now, just so we don't miss it, John's very careful. He did not cease being God. He added unfallen humanity to his undiminished deity. Question, why? 
Why did the word become flesh? Why did he dwell among us? So that sinners like you and me could come face to face with God. So that we could see God in the flesh. So he could reveal to us God. Now, the language John uses here is, is, is again language from the Old Testament. He's picking up Exodus language. You remember in the, the Exodus, remember in the Exodus, there's the people in the wilderness, and God tells his people to build a tabernacle, a tent, because they're in the wilderness, they're dwelling in tents. God says, pitch tent for me, tabernacle, and he comes and he dwells within the midst of the people in a tent made of ram skins. So just like the Israelites were living in tents, God came in their midst and he dwelt in a tent. He became like them. So too Jesus. He comes. God, the word, made flesh. And he becomes like us. Not made of ramskin, made of human flesh. So that's a real human body, blood pumping through his veins, real human consciousness, consciousness, real range of human emotions. Not half God and half man, fully God and fully man. This verse says that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. When you think about it, this is the eternal God who was with God, who was with the Father and the Spirit in the past, sharing in glory and love. Just, just, just think about the, the, the humiliation, right? God in Christ came into this world, and He didn't live a life of detachment, but He lived a life of involvement. This is the bit, right, where if you want to worship your Savior, like just He came into a world. But he saw with his eyes human sin, even though he's too pure to gaze upon sin. He heard with his ears his name being blasphemed. He saw up front human death and disease. He came into this world and he dwelt among us. He became flesh, dwelling among us, sharing our environment. And if you want some application, you're thinking, Andy, there's a lot this morning. Mine can barely take it in. One of my professors from ETS once said, in light of this, the word becoming flesh, for us as individuals and churches living in an affluent society, this is a great embarrassment. Because we ought to minister in a lost world where we're in it. We're sharing, coming alongside them as Christ came into this world and shared in the environment of this world. Now, now, now John just adds, just, just adds again to, to, to who Jesus is. We've seen his glory. And then he says he's full of grace and truth. And maybe some of you need to hear this this morning. The word is full of grace. From the top to the bottom, full of grace. You can't exhaust him. He's the fountain of grace. He gives grace upon grace. What's God's grace? It's his compassion for the undeserving. It's compassion for those who demerit it. He's full of grace. 
His grace never runs out. There's never a moment Jesus will turn to his people and say, I don't have grace for you. No grace left. But John says he's full of grace, and then he says he's also full of truth. And if you think about it, if he's full of truth, that's a challenge, because how can he be gracious to us as people if he deals with us in terms of truth? Because who we are, sinners, deserving his just judgment. Was because in, in Jesus, grace and truth kiss perfectly together. You see, in Jesus, God shows himself both as just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. In Jesus, he satisfies God's divine justice so that he can be gracious towards us. Hell deserving sinners. Now, as I, as I wrap this up, again, I'm going to ask the question, so what? This is, this is hugely significant, right? If Jesus is not God, then what we're doing here is blasphemy. Idolatry. But since Jesus is God, what we're doing here is worship. John here presents Jesus in all of his glory as the one who reveals to us God. These things might baffle your mind, who he is, you know, it's just so much to take in. But but I love what Tim Keller once said, if our God were small enough to be fully understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. And and what we ought to take huge encouragement from this morning is as we begin this gospel, our gospel rests on the one who made us, who knows us, who in amazing love became one of us to save us, to bring us into fellowship with him forevermore. There is nothing more stunning and staggering than this, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we can scarce take in the truths that we've been meditating upon this morning. finite minds cannot plumb the depths of who you are nor can they plumb the depths of what you've done in your son for us but we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us that we might believe in your son and have life and so we pray oh God that we would trust in him we believe in him And that we would know life in its abundance. God, we pray as believers that we would never come with a posture where we have low thoughts of you. Our thoughts are never worthy of you. But that you would stretch the vision of our hearts 
to see more of your greatness, more of your glory, and your goodness, and your grace. We pray this in your Son's precious and powerful name. Amen.